This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa. Always giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa. And we are available on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. My name is Samora Mangesi. Driving the show with Jualani Tulo, Tracy Bungard and Neto Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Zimbabwe's Movement for Democratic Change Party elects Nelson Chamisa as its leader at its alliance's elective congress held at the weekend. Botswana's former president Ian Kama quits from the governing party that made him president. And diarrhea is said to be the third leading cause of death amongst children under the age of five and presents a major public health problem in South Africa. We'll also be having your economics as well as sporting news a little bit later on in the show just before we close off the hour. But right now, I do want to say hello, Zolani. Hi, Samora. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good, good. Did you have a good weekend? Yes, I did. So I've got some good news for you, right? Mm. Um, I was speaking to someone who listens to the show. Yes. Uh, who, who was a regular listener. And um, the funny thing is that out of all of my colleagues, you were the only person whose name that they knew. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea too. <laughs> anyway, I also have to say that the person was my mother. So, <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, it's time for us to cross it over to the news desk. Here is Rolani Tula with your latest news. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. The bodies of eight miners have been recovered in a mine north of Harare in Zimbabwe following an explosion in a mine shaft. The incident occurred at a previously abandoned mine in the country's Mazowe region north of the capital. Illegal mining is a common problem in mineral-rich Zimbabwe. In February, more than 20 miners died after an open mine flooded overnight. The BBC's Shingai Nyoka reports. The small-scale miners are believed to have been working illegally in the South African-owned Jumbo mine. The Information Ministry says initial indications are that some miners exploded dynamite in one shaft, causing a collapse in an adjacent one. Illegal mining has increased in Zimbabwe as commercial miners scale down operations due to an economic crisis. The mining methods are rudimentary and safety standards largely disregarded. Algerian media is reporting that there's, was ve- there is very little chance of the presidential election being held on the planned date of July 4th, this after only two candidates submitted their candidacies. The poll was originally meant to take place on April 18th. However, long-time President Abdelaziz Bouteflika's resignation early last month on the back of huge street protests forced a postponement. To be eligible, the candidates have to be backed by 600 local councillors and lawmakers or 60,000 voters in more than half the country's regions. Despite Bouteflika's departure, protesters have continued to stage mass demonstrations each Friday. South Africa's presidency says the work of government is continuing unhindered despite President Cyril Ramaphosa still having to announce his cabinet. It says Ramaphosa is still consulting with the ANC and its alliance partners before announcing his executive. Following his inauguration at the weekend, it was expected that he would name his ministers and their deputies on Monday, presidential spokesperson Kusala Diko says heads of departments are doing their work as usual. 
The president is consulting with the national officials of the governing party, the African National Congress. He's also expected to have an engagement with the alliance members, COSATU, SACP and uh, SANCOP. And these are all part and parcel of obviously the party processes that the African National Congress undertakes before the president exercises his prerogative to appoint cabinet. But I want to add the fact that there's absolutely no crisis. There's no vacuum in government at this point in time. While those who were ministers before are no longer competent to function as such, the directors general in the various departments have full operational control of the work of government. So work is proceeding and as soon as the president is ready, he will then announce cabinet. U.S. President Donald Trump says he doesn't seek regime change in Iran despite escalating U.S. tension with Tehran. Trump says Iran could be a great country under his current leadership. The BBC's Rupert Wingfield Hayes has the story. I'm not looking to hurt Iran, but I am looking for no nuclear weapons. Those were the words of President Donald Trump as he called on Iran's leaders to come to the negotiating table and suggested he might use Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe as a go-between. Mr Trump also said he doesn't believe North Korea's renewed missile testing shows that Kim Jong-un is turning his back on peace negotiations with the United States. And finally, the United States recorded 60 new measles cases last week, taking confirmed cases for the year to 940. This is the worst outbreak since 1994, and since measles was declared eliminated in the year 2000, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said the number of cases of the highly contagious and sometimes deadly disease rose 6.8% last week. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. This is Africa Digest. Starting off in Botswana, where former President Ian Kama has quit the governing party, the Botswana Democratic Party, otherwise known as BDP, citing a fallout between him and his successor, current President Mukwetsi Masisi. It is the first time in Botswana that an ex-president has abandoned the governing party in the history uh, of a 57-year-old organization. Kama told thousands of supporters in his rural hometown of Serowe that he has made a mistake in choosing Masisi as his successor in the diamond-rich country, which has enjoyed a carefully crafted reputation for stable government. Kama and Masisi have fallen out publicly, with Masisi reversing some policies introduced by his predecessor, including most recently the lifting of a ban on elephant trophy hunting. According to Spencer Mukhapi, deputy editor of Botswana's Sunday Standard newspaper, the fallout between the two leaders could destabilize the country ahead of the polls slated for October this year. I think uh, there's really been a big, big fallout between uh, the former president Ian Kama and his successor, Mukwete Masisi. The two men really have uh, been uh, in a tug of war, I would say, since uh, immediately after the, the succession thing was over last year. So it, this time had to come. I mean, something had to give. And uh, the, the, we really do not know uh, what could really be behind uh, the whole thing. Uh, but at least publicly, Kama has been saying he's worried about governance. He's been saying democracy has uh, been eroded. And all, all the reasons that he gives, I'm sorry to say, uh, that they're not borne out by uh, reality on the ground because you would still want to believe that Masisi has been trying very hard to put the country back on track. Uh, in fact, you would imagine it was Kama really himself who 
under him, the country really derailed from its uh, democratic tra- tra- traditions. So we don't know what really is behind the mm. scenes. Too many have agreed that they are not. Uh, he's not happy with now. Mm. Now let's talk about um, the support that that Kama um, uh, still enjoys within the ruling party. Um, what are the dynamics there? I want to say that uh, as an individual, Kama is really uh, is very very popular. Uh, but that popularity actually stems from the fact that he's a royal, a very senior royal of the, the Kamamangwati, that is the whole area in the central district, uh, covering about uh, 12 constituencies or so, and his tribe there is quite paramount. Uh, but those are for many people really ancient dynamics. They do not really mean much other than just that, that his, uh, his, uh, his lineage traces him to uh, the dynasty that was uh, in the 17th or 18th centuries. So he still believes that he will enough power to remove a sitting head of state nonetheless. Uh, but I doubt very much that uh, he would be able to do that just on his own with just a few months left before the general elections during October this year. Mm. Uh, what he's trying to do now is to also have uh, the opposition that has mm-hmm. always been there that during his time, he ridiculed, he humiliated, and thought that they really were not very patriotic. But he's trying to draw them uh, now closer to him as a way, of course, of removing uh, President Masisi from power. Mm. Now, there's also been a new party that was, that's was that been registered in Botswana, and um, there's been a talk around uh, Akama having been as one of the people who are behind this. Has there been any uh, sort of clarity around this issue? Yes, no, he made it very clear uh, at the meeting uh, over the weekend that he is behind the party, uh, that he will sure. be voting for it, mm. and he implored everybody, all his followers there, his tribesmen basically, to also vote for that uh, particular party. He also made it very clear at that particular meeting over the weekend that uh, the way has to be found for the party, uh, the patriotic front as it is called, to also uh, uh, liaise with uh, the UDC. The, the whole aim basically to remove uh, President Masisi. He's very, very unhappy with Masisi. Uh, he's saying Masisi really has undone everything that he, Kama, and the others, the predecessors before him, had built. Uh, but I think also one of the big, big issues that he's most worried about is an announcement that happened last week when President Masisi's government announced that they were lifting the ban that had been imposed by Kama himself on hunting, uh, especially around the elephants, because uh, they said the elephants' had, the numbers had become too much, too high, uh, something had to be done to reduce the numbers. So that is, I think I would say, a straw that really broke uh, the kennel's back because Hama really is a staunch conservationist uh, and he wouldn't really have wanted under his, uh, to see that uh, the, lifting, the, the lifting of the ban that he had imposed himself. And uh, just finally, when we look at this situation and, and, and the fallout and the intensity of it, uh, Spencer, what sort of implications could this have on the country? Uh, it has really very huge implications, I would say, for the country at large, especially also now because they, they are involving also the South Africans. Uh, Kama is known to have gone on a number of times to South Africa to seek and solicit assistance from people like Bridget Radeda, that side, uh, basically telling them that uh, the country inside Botswana is now on fire and he wanted something and assistance to rescue it. So 
it also, I think, spells very difficult relations going forward between the South African government and the Botswana government, depending, of course, on how President Ramaphosa, that side, is able to rein in some of the people who are considered to be members of his own family uh, from meddling in the Botswana politics. That was Spencer Mukhapi, deputy editor of Botswana's Sunday Standard newspaper, speaking to Zikonami. So 1712 Central African Time, you're still listening to Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangesi. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa is expected to announce his much-anticipated cabinet later this week. Speculation is rife that he will significantly reduce his executive and ministries. The country's cabinet has ballooned over the past 20 years, from 50 members under former President Thabo Mbeki to over 70 under President Jacob Zuma. Tebo Mukobo has more. After President Ramaphosa's inauguration at the weekend, the focus has now shifted on who he will appoint to his executive. Although refusing to be drawn on the names, he said South Africans can be rest assured that those who are going to be in his cabinet will be competent and equal to the task. He promised a social compact between government and business that will move the country away from the scourge of corruption. Let us also forge a compact of an efficient, capable and ethical state, a state that is free from corruption for companies that generate social value and propel human development and for elected officials and public servants who faithfully serve no other cause than the cause of our people. And Chief Justice Mukwe Mukweng has urged the President to ensure that only ethical people are placed in positions of leadership. It is to wish him well and to make sure that in line with his promises, nobody who lacks integrity and nobody who lacks the capacity to discharge a responsibility at a high level on behalf of the South African public, to his knowledge, gets to be appointed. With South Africa's cabinet being one of the most bloated in the continent, it is inevitable that the president will heed the call to shrink his executive. And COPE spokesperson Dennis Bloom has joined the chorus of a smaller cabinet. We want him to cut his cabinet and do away with deputy ministers. Corrupt individuals must not be appointed because this country cannot afford this corruption anymore. So far, all MPs have been sworn in with the exception of the governing party's deputy president, David Mabuza. The ANC's second-in-command cited allegations of corruption leveled against him 
in his capacity as former Mpumalanga Premier. But after being cleared by the public protector, and with these allegations not being proven in any court of law, Professor Lesibatifo says Mabuza is likely to come back as the country's deputy president. What he did is to portray himself as a voice of reason that is responsive to the call of the ANC that says, when you are implicated in malfeasance and other things, please step aside and address those. If today he is acquitted again once more, or they say there is nothing we can do about this matter, and then he is cleared, Greedy will come out smelling like a rose, more strengthened and more presidential, because now people would say that's the example that is worthy of emulation. And as all eyes are on the president as he ponders on his new executive this week, speculation is rife that his team is likely going to be reduced from 70 to 50 ministers and their deputies. However, Ramaphosa is expected to give details on the reconfigured cabinet on the day of the announcement. I am Tebu Mokobo in Johannesburg. As the government of Mozambique establishes new resettlement areas for cyclone-hit communities, the United Nations Children's Fund is working hard to equally help restore education. Setting up temporary learning facilities, the child agency maintains that it is through creating learning opportunities that children will have a sense of normalcy. For more on this issue, here's UNICEF's uh, Kieran Dwyer. For UNICEF, um, getting children back into learning and, and back into education is critical for a few reasons. First, it's their right to education and their future, so they don't lose months and months of, of keeping up with their education. But also, it means getting children into a more protective environment where they're cared for and looked after throughout the day and they're not vulnerable uh, to potentially to violence or exploitation. And third, it gives families a routine and really something to get up for every day, get the kids ready to school, get them to school, and it starts the process of normalcy. Has there been significant progress in getting children who have been affected by the two cyclones back at school? The progress on education is different depending on where you go. Here in the city of Bayera, you have schools, some of them have been extensively damaged, and most of them have lost their roofs. We have put in urgent tents for classes where the classrooms have been completely damaged. And you're seeing in the city, children are back at school, even if the facilities are very, very damaged and need a lot of work. In the resettlement areas where people are starting to move to, sometimes there's a school nearby, but it's usually not big enough to take all of the extra students. So we are having to establish temporary school tents really and again in some areas that's already up and running but this is really a phase that needs to be established in the more rural areas where new resettlement areas are being established getting those basic initial schools in tents up and running is still something we're working hard on so we are uh, establishing temporary learning facilities. We're getting school supplies and things out to these resettlement sites, but there's still a long way to go in the coming couple of months to make sure that every community has at least a basic uh, education uh, facility, uh, even if it's intense, and also that teachers are supported to get back up and running. Because remember, in these communities, teachers, their families have also lost everything. So helping them to get back on their feet to teach the children is also a big step.
Now, Kiran, during such humanitarian situations, there are always fears that the attention for those affected might fade sooner than necessary, despite the fact that the road to recovery for those who have been uprooted and their lives turned upside down is a very long and difficult one. What can you say about the situation in Mozambique? Is the outside attention still there? I think that for the people of Mozambique affected by these two cyclones, the attention is still there at the moment, but the risk is that in the coming two or three months, the attention will move to the next big new crisis in the world and and the people here will be forgotten. And the truth is that uh, we are still just moving past the initial urgent life-saving humanitarian work here for both cyclone-affected communities. And the communities have only only just at the very beginning of the recovery phase. This will take many, many, many months and it will also take considerable financial support from the government of Mozambique and from the international donors and from ordinary families who can contribute. The communities here in Mozambique, I see a lot of generosity, but we need outside support. Many of these families and the communities were already very poor before the cyclones hit and they've been pushed back a long way. So to recover is going to take many months. And there is a risk that the world will move on and forget the hard, slow work of supporting people to recover. This means getting health systems back up and running, making sure every child is vaccinated against infectious diseases, making sure that every child has safe water so they don't get sick, and making sure that every child is protected from from violence and is in school and learning. The communities will help themselves a lot if they're given a little bit of sustained assistance. We see that. The strength and resilience of families as they move back to these resettlement areas, they say they're ready to do everything they can. We see them beginning to build the most basic houses with tents. They'll do that, but they need sustained support so that every child can be safe and can have a future. And what else has UNICEF focused on lately in assisting Mozambique's vulnerable children? Getting basic health services and children vaccinated and screening children for malnutrition is a really big step. So across the 21 districts affected in in, in central Mozambique, UNICEF worked with the government, health ministry and with other partners and we vaccinated more than 800,000 children against diseases like measles and rubella and we gave them vitamin A supplements. We also screened those hundreds of thousands of children for malnutrition and started children on treatment, nutrition treatment when they needed it. So this is the beginning of getting the health system back up and running for these people because that, of course, collapsed after the crisis, especially in the rural areas. So this kind of work, making sure that every child is able to be healthy, have enough nutrition and ultimately get back into school is is really what UNICEF and our partners are focusing on. And that was uh, Kieran Dwyer of the United Nations Children's Fund. He was on the line from Beira in Mozambique talking to Jane Rabutata. The American multinational food manufacturing company Kellogg's, together with the South African National Department of Basic Education, are helping alleviate hunger by hosting a World Hunger Day on Wednesday the 28th of May at the Lecha Primary School in Johannesburg, South Africa. According to Statistics South Africa, 14 million people in this country have inadequate access to food and 25% of the population live below the poverty line. More from Kellogg's Head of External Relations in South Africa, Zandile Mposelwa. 
What we know is that in South Africa, one in five children go to school without eating breakfast. And it is really quite a serious concern for us because a hungry child cannot learn at all. And Kellogg has therefore taken initiative to help alleviate a hunger. And we do realize that this is not just about feeding children, but it's also about feeding their potential. We currently serve 25,000 children breakfast every school day and in a year it comes up to about 2.5 million breakfast meals and tomorrow on the 28th of february we're commemorating world hunger day because hunger is a serious concern across the world and in south africa as well zandi don't you think that you are enabling the parents to rely on kellex to feed their children no we're not all we're doing is to lend a helping hand to parents. And as an organization, we recognize that now and again, people experience some challenges in life, and that is why we did to provide this meal. Now, what is the main core that Kellex has started this program? Because most public schools provide learners with food for breakfast. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So this is a program that has been endorsed by the Department of Education. So we work together with the National Department of Education. So whilst the schools offer meals, we come to provide support with breakfast. What is the selection process for schools being part of this initiative? We work with the Department of Education. We approached them to say this is the initiative that we would like to do and we would like them to select schools that they believe need to be part of the program. And these are schools in lower LSM communities that need the help. What are we to expect for tomorrow's World Hunger Day from Kellogg's? On the day, we're going to be there to serve breakfast to the children and also our managing director, Gerald Mahinda, will be making a vote of thanks to the community to thank them for welcoming us into the school to allow us to serve breakfast at the school. We anticipate that there would be a word from the school governing body or the principal of the school. And to wrap things off, are we going to see the initiative branching out to other countries apart from South Africa, of course? As much as Kellogg currently operates in multiple countries in Africa, this program is currently rolled out in South Africa. And in the near future, we would look into implementing it to other countries, but it will be dependent on how you know the plans are going. But we are excited that we are making impact at these schools in South Africa. And that was Zandi Lemposelo, Kellogg's Head of External Relations in South Africa, on the line to Nombuiselo Tango. Information technologies are changing the lives of many African farmers who previously were dependent on brokers who charged fees to serve as middlemen to purchases. Now they can use the internet to find customers more easily and increase their income in the, proce- in the process. Uh, the African Development Bank says is promising as a billion Africans are subscribers. Moki Kinzeka from Dola in Cameroon where farmers are selling their produ- produce online. Farmer Loic Domgia sells almost all of her produce online and through phone apps. She's been using the internet for the last year and says it's improved her income. She says before now, they waited to produce before looking for buyers. 
but through the platform they can work knowing that they have a precise customer who has already placed the order. She says it reduces the stress on the producer who no longer waits to look for clients. She says they sleep well knowing they already have orders. Domgear uses a local platform that links producers and buyers, allowing producers to sell directly to the customer without a broker in the middle. The app even makes it possible for the farmers to receive advanced payments. The application is called Jangolo Farmers. Designers Rose Ngamini says it helps farmers to sell before harvest. There is also a difference regarding the price when you buy a product on Jalingo Farmers, says Ngamini. Since the number of intermediaries is considerably reduced, the buyer gains by buying a product at a lower price and the farmer has a higher profit margin by selling through our application, he says. Cameroon's National Institute of Statistics reports that 25% of the population connects to the Internet daily and users are more often buying agri-food products online. Pierre-Fredin Goudzi, a Jangolo farmer user, says he is one of those who is benefiting from the electronic trade. He says he orders chickens online because he does not have enough time as he works at the gym from morning till night. He says he chooses to place an order online so that it can be delivered at his job site. Cyprien Tanke, electronic trade specialist, says it's a good initiative to develop agri-food online sales platforms, but much remains to be done. He says if a company does not own stores, it would be difficult for buyers to evaluate the product they are buying. He says there should be a space where one can evaluate the product before paying as the lack of a store is an obstacle to the development of this type of e-commerce. The African Development Bank estimates there are more than a billion mobile phone subscribers in Africa, making the market bigger than either the European Union or the United States. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. 17.30 Central African Time. Let's cross on over to the news desk. Here is Jwalani with your latest news. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, the bodies of eight miners have been recovered in a mine north of Harare in Zimbabwe following an explosion in a mine shaft. Algerian media is reporting that there's very little chance the presidential elections will be held as planned on July 4th. And finally, South Africa's presidency says the work of government is continuing unhindered, despite President Cyril Ramaphosa still having to announce his cabinet. For Channel Africa, I'm Choloni Tulo.
I, Nelson Holisasa Mandela, do hereby say to be faithful to the Republic of South Africa. He was not a ruler, like just telling people what to do. He didn't rule us, he led us. His role as president in the process of nation building was exemplary and wonderful. You could disagree with him, he would disagree with you, you could even be quite testy with each other, and yet it wouldn't affect the overall relationship of your own cooperation or friendship. Nelson Mandela, a giant of two centuries. This is Africa Digest. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1,000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. In an effort to assist upcoming musicians elevate their careers through music as well as equip them with the tools of the trade, a new music hub, Amp Studios, has been launched in Johannesburg, South Africa. The hub, an in- initiative by Old Mutual, will be accessible to asp- aspirant musicians. It will play host to a range of projects with industry experts such as Kulichana, Letambulu, Tandeswamazwai and Brian O'Shea, sharing powerful insights and honest conversations about their experiences in the entertainment industry. More from Old Mutual's head of brand, Tobile Chabalala. So this is actually coming from lots of work that we've done previously. Um, Old Mutual has actually been known to support the endurance sports and we've actually made a strategic decision to actually move away from that space simply because we felt that we were losing um, the impact that we're trying to create in the minds of our customers. So this has actually been quite a breakthrough property that we wanted to get involved in because we all know that music is universal. It touches us in many forms. Either we have a lot of aspiring musicians or it's just a people who just are so deeply involved in music. And we thought this is actually a space that could give us um, a better engagement and a better penetration, particularly in the young market, um, to actually be able to provide financial guidance for those who are aspiring to be um, musicians. And we want them to make a success of their lives. So who then has access to these studios? This studio is actually um, a public space. People will just be required to register so that we obviously have some form of data that allows us who actually comes and visits the space. But it's actually open to the public free of charge. We'll be running different sessions in the space. We'll be inviting even entrepreneurs to come and actually demonstrate and display their ways, uh, particularly in the creative space, so that we create that opportunity for people to actually begin to appreciate you know, the creative spaces. So the studio will officially open to the public on the 1st of June. Are there plans to expand it 
beyond Gauteng? That's a tough question because that's something that we'd like to do, but it may not necessarily be in the immediate future. We need to make a success of this one in particular uh, before we can actually expand to a Cape Town, to a Durban and so on. And that is why we think the live streaming, um, utilizing the web and utilizing a national broadcaster like Metro FM is actually quite important so that the message actually transcends beyond Johannesburg. So, but yeah, we are hoping that we can establish a lot more others like this. And what is it that you are hoping to achieve? I know the launch is happening today and is officially open to the public on the 1st, but what is it that Old Mutual wants to take with now that you've opened such a space for young up-and-coming artists to come and utilize it? What's in it for us is just ready to be seen as a key enabler in the minds of our customers and potential customers, um, particularly the young market, uh, because what we have found when we did research was that we were losing relevance and meaningfulness you know, in the younger audience. And that's a problem for us because then that means in the long term, our business may actually be at risk. So it's important to appeal and uh, make a meaningful difference um, to those young consumers so that we can protect our own business in future. And that was Old Mutual's head of brand, Tobila Chabalala. She was speaking to Ntlantla Masangu. Professor Adrian Edkins of South Africa's Rhodes University has received close to 140,000 US dollars from the UK government to tackle HIV-related cancer. This is part of an international program which aims to provide opportunities for researchers in developing countries to foster long-term research partnerships with those in the United Kingdom. Professor Edkins joined us on the line to discuss this issue further. Uh, Professor Edkins, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to talk about our work with you. Could you uh, just enlighten us as to how you were selected for this award and uh, who you will collaborate with? Sure. So um, this award is part of the uh, UK government's initiative to really grow collaborative research with groups in Africa. And um, so I've partnered up with a team um, that includes uh, academics at the University of Leeds in the UK. So that's a professor by the name of Adrian Whitehouse. And um, and then Professor Nissan Mosam, who's at UKZN in the dermatology department. And together um, we're going to bring a collaborative and complementary uh, expertise to try and understand this challenging problem. Could you please give us an overview of what your research will cover and how you plan to carry that out as well? Absolutely. So we're looking at the uh, one of the main um, HIV-related cancers, which is a cancer known as Carposi sarcoma, and it's thought to have a viral origin. And so essentially what we're going to understand is look at how elements of the virus interact with elements of the host cells and then see if we can go in and disable certain functions in the host cell that make it impossible for the virus to survive and could then hopefully in future be developed into some sort of therapy. Um, obviously, we want to try and really understand this in detail so that, um, you know, so that we have the best chance in the future of develop, developing new therapeutic options. So, uh, Professor Edkins... How much do we actually know about the prevalence of HIV-related cancers in developing countries specifically? Um, more or less, there have been a lot of initiatives sort of recently to um, gather cancer um, statistics in, in different countries. And so we know something about um, the incidence, but where we really lack the information is 
is a sort of deep understanding of how and why um, these cancers develop in, in the context of, of HIV. And so obviously we're working on a, on a, a cancer that we think has a viral origin. Um, but there are other studies now that are showing that other cancers are related to, to HIV, and sometimes they're not the, the ones that we might suspect. So um, I, think, I, I think really we need to understand the sort of nuts and bolts from the biological perspective, um, because we know that there is emerging data that, that these, um, these types of diseases are becoming more and more prevalent. Let's talk about the relation between HIV and uh, the, the, the certain types of cancers. Are people living with HIV at a significantly higher risk for certain types of cancer? Oh, so I don't think we can. Um, I don't think we can say that at this point now because the data are still too new. But mm-hmm. certainly there are emerging trends. So there have been um, there've been long-term associations known. So for example, with Kaposi sarcoma, that is something that's well known to be associated with HIV. Um, and there's certain other types of, of cancers, um, say cervical cancer, that might have been more linked with HIV status. Um, um, and But now we're starting to see from the data that are coming out that there might be some links with, say, lung cancer or other types of cancer, although we're not at a point now where we can say that, you know, you're definitively going to get be at a higher risk or not because of, of that. We still need to really get to grips with with the data and, and understand the biology better, you know, hence the importance of these types of studies. And do you expect your research to help change the way that HIV-related cancers are prevented and treated on the African continent? Well, I think that's the ultimate goal. Um, obviously, this, uh, we're really at the beginning of the project. So it's going to be some time before we're able to achieve that. So we hope that um, in this particular project, we will be able to understand how the virus operates inside human cells and whether that is linked to, uh, you know, increase in malignant characteristics and also to see if we can identify elements that could be used as um as targets for future drug development. Obviously, the impact is going to be in the future, and we have to do the early phase molecular interaction studies now. Um, and obviously, one of, one of those elements is also to really look in, um, try and look in patient samples um, and, and access our, our, you know, get data from our own patient um, cohorts that will be more informative about the South African context than perhaps some of the other studies have been um, internationally. Professor Edkins, thank you very much for all the work that you do. Thank you so much. And thank you very much for joining us on the line as well. That was Professor Adrian Edkins of the Rhodes University in South Africa. Moving on right now uh, to the United Nations Children's Fund, otherwise known as UNICEF, has just made an appeal for 7 million to help treat extremely vulnerable children in Afghanistan who are suffering from the worst form of malnutrition. In an interview with the UN's news, Daniel, uh, UN News's Daniel Johnson, UNICEF spokesperson Christoph Bolirak explains how the agency provides help throughout the war-torn country and what could happen if it doesn't get the funding it needs. The um, situation of malnutrition of children in Afghanistan is alarming. There are 2 million children in the country which suffer from acute malnutrition and among them 600,000 children that suffer from 
severe acute malnutrition. A child that suffers from severe acute malnutrition is a child that needs urgent treatment, otherwise he might die. For instance, he's extremely weak, uh, he can get sick very easy, and one in two children in Afghanistan is not vaccinated. So you're telling me children are going to die within a few weeks unless you get this funding? Well, the problem is that we are UNICEF the only provider, the sole provider of the treatment for these severely acutely malnourished children. And our uh, nutrition programs are totally underfunded. We need $26 million in 2019, we have half of it. And in three weeks, if we don't get urgently $7 million that will allow us to buy more than 100,000 cartoons of this uh, therapeutic food that is so life-saving, we will stop providing this treatment to 1,300 health facilities in Afghanistan, all over the countries in very remote rural areas. That means that severely acutely malnourished children who need urgently a treatment will go to these facilities and will not have treatment. You say all over the country. Is there anywhere in particular that has been affected by last year's drought? For example, there's also 40 years of conflict. Where are we talking really? Is it rural areas in Afghanistan? We're talking about all of the country, but it's true that in 2018 there was a drought that affected very, very seriously 22 out of 34 provinces in the country, and it was mostly in the southwest, in the, in the northeast. So uh, in these very hardly affected um, provinces by the drought, we noticed, I mean, some data show that the level of severe acute malnutrition in these specific provinces have increased of 25%. So four decades of war for children, a very difficult year in 2018, a conflict that is still lasting, and children, a level of severely acutely malnourished children, 600,000. And that was Christophe Bolirak, a spokesperson for the United Nations Children's Fund. He was talking to UN Radio's Christophe. Uh, but anyway, right now it is time for us to cross on over to the money desk. Here is Tracy Boomgard with your latest economics news. Thank you, Samora. A Zimbabwean Treasury official has accused exporters of keeping 900 million US dollars of their earnings in offshore banks. Permanent Secretary for the Ministry of Finance, George Guvamatanga, told a parliamentary committee that 500 million dollars out of last year's 4.3 billion export earnings was still being kept offshore, while another 400 million was outstanding from the January to May 2019 exports, which earned 1.4 billion. The central bank last week ended subsidies on fuel and directed oil companies to start to buy dollars on the official interbank. It also told banks to ensure the exchange rate reflected market conditions. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari has signed a 29 billion US dollar budget for 2019 into law. The budget is based on estimated oil production of 2.3 million barrels a day and an assumed crude price of $60 per barrel. Nigeria's economy, the largest in Africa, grew by 1.93% last year. The continent's top oil producer relies on crude sales for about 90% of its foreign exchange. Buhari is due to be inaugurated for a second four-year term on Wednesday after he won re-election in February. 
He pledged to revive the economy, improve security and tackle corruption. African farmers are turning to information technology to improve their income. Previously, farmers were dependent on brokers who charged fees to serve as middlemen to purchasers. Now farmers are selling their produce online. Cameroonian farmer Luis Dombugia says almost all her produce online and through phone apps. She uses a local platform that links producers and buyers, allowing producers to sell directly to the customer. The app even makes it possible for the farmers to receive advanced payments. The application is called Jengalo rather farmers. She says she's been using the internet for the last year and it's improved her income. She says before now, they waited to produce before looking for buyers, but through the platform they can work, knowing that they have a precise customer who has already placed the order. She says it reduces the stress on the producer who no longer waits to look for clients. She says they sleep well, knowing they already have orders. Britain's Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn says the continuing chaos in the country will push the party into a no-deal exit with the European Union. He adds that the British government can and will prevent such a damaging outcome for jobs and industry in the United Kingdom. Corbyn's comments come as his Labour Party calls for the Brexit issue to be taken back to the people of the UK, either at a new national election or a public vote. China's chief financial regulator says a trade war with the United States has had a limited impact on his country's financial market and believes the effects will be even smaller in the future. Huai Shuqing, chairman of the China Bank and Insurance Regulatory Commission, added that the country's stock and foreign exchange markets have not panicked amid the escalating trade war. The U.S. dollar is trading at 356.74 Nigerian Naira, 10.60 Botswana Pula at 99.40 Kenyan Shilling and a 12.73 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.02 Brazilian Hail, 64.42 Russian Ruble, 69.21 Indian Rupee, 6.91 Chinese Yuan and at 14.37 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 78 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,286 and platinum at $803 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $68.80 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. And now we're crossing over to the sports desk. Here is Neto Chimani. Thank you, Samara. From the sports desk, a very good afternoon. Starting off with mountain climbing.
Sarai Kumalo, who is the first African black woman to submit Mount Everest, returned home earlier this morning to a hero's welcome at Oartambo International Airport, east of Johannesburg. Kumalo was met by an enthusiastic crowd of supporters, including a brass band. Kumalo, who was born in Zambia but has a South African citizenship, reached the summit of the 8,848-meter mountain on May the 16th after three previous failed attempts. She has she says she hopes to see other women follow her, follow her footsteps. You know, initially I was just putting it out there because of sponsors, they like the ring to it. But I realized, I realized how important it is. You know, I, I, I sat down and reflected that the first time Everest was climbed is 1953. So it's 66, 66 years later. Like, oh my goodness, what other things have we not done? that we need to actually create space for the next generation of, of girls, African girls, a seat at the table. We can do anything. So there are no holy cows. Let's keep pushing. I've done Everest and I'm hoping others would follow behind. And there are other things, whatever sphere you're doing in, do it to the best of your ability because you're opening doors for another African child out there. At least 10 people have lost their lives on the mountain this season alone. This includes Kumalo's teammate Irish professor Simas Lawless, who also reached the peak with Kumalo. The Irish professor reportedly fell during the descent with Kumalo. She was shocked when she heard the news, describing him as one of the most experienced and strongest climbers. It was a bit of a shock, like we were discussing earlier. He was the strongest of of all of us, you know. Um, So initially I thought it was a joke. Then I realized it actually wasn't. Um, And then my other teammates started saying, oh, no, we must look for him. But. The Director General of the South African Sporting Ministry, Alec Moyemi, was there at the airport for welcoming and had this to say. It has been quite cruelling on herself, on her body. But we had followed with keen interest uh, every step of the way as she attempted the challenge once again. And this time around, uh, the conditions and all our prayers were with her and uh, the conditions were just perfect and right. And she did manage to achieve what many of us, even in 10 lifetimes, would never be able to achieve. And uh, that makes... uh, No doubt a true South African hero by far. On to football news. Nigeria's men's under-20 football team take on the USA in their second match of the ongoing FIFA under-20 men's World Cup in Poland later this evening. The match kicks off at 1900 Central African time. USA lost 2-1 to Ukraine in their opening game of the 2019 under-20 World Cup and must avoid defeat to stand a chance of progressing to the knockout stages. The Flying Eagles thrashed Qatar 4-0 in their opening match and a win will secure them a place in the knockout stages. Here is Flying Eagles head coach Paula Ibogun speaking ahead of the encounter. We've had to study the, the other team that we're playing against um, and make some adjustments. We won the game, but there's certain areas that we still need to improve. They're a good team like any other team here. So, so we know that we have to uh, always continue to say we have to be at our best uh, to beat them. But, you know, we're, we're also a good team. Most importantly, we have to play to our own strength. 
And finally, in rugby news, Kenya's National Servants Society rugby team will next weekend in Paris have one last chance to fight for survival and remain a member of the core teams in the IRB World Servants Series. The East Africans must outlast Japan and Wales in the Paris Servants meet to remain in the top flight after dropping one place and each closer to the relegation position. Sunday was a disappointing day for the Kenya Sevens in London as the team fell 26-4-17 to Japan in the 13th place semi-final to end the league with just one point. Bushimwale and Jeff Oluoch scored Kenya's tries with Johnston Olindi converting one. The loss followed an earlier 29-21 defeat to Scotland during the Challenge Cup Trophy quarterfinals. Coming to London, Kenya needed to match a result by relegation threatened neighbours Wales and Japan to stay clear of the danger zone. However, Japan Japan made it to the 13th place final and Wales progressed to the Challenge Trophy semi-final. The Shujas will have to wait until the final leg of the HSBC season in Paris next weekend to give survival in the World 7 Series one last shot. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and ETO Chemani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for for this hour. Be sure to join us again later on in the evening from 1900 hours Central African time. From myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Leb Muswewu, as well as the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening. For comments on the show, do send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus 27763003327. Taking us to the top of the hour is Bayete with uh, Amambau. We'll see you later.